Good morning. As we're starting our summer, what a beautiful way to be able to examine the way in which God wants to work in the summer days by turning to God's Word. And here what you and I are going to find as we're opening God's Word to John chapter 2 this morning is that we are going to start a summer series, not in a book study as we usually do, But what we're going to do over the course of these Sundays together is look very carefully at questions that Jesus Christ posed to people. Usually what I'll find, and maybe you are similar, is that when people are wrestling with the big issues of life, they have questions for God. But what is it that God might want to ask in terms of questions to you to me. Job had questions for God, but God's response to Job is a series of questions for Job. What I want to do is to explore in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over the course of these summer Sundays together, a series of questions that Jesus Christ posed, sometimes to his followers to deepen their faith, other times to those who were opposed to him to challenge their worldviews and their biases, to stir within their own hearts a new appreciation as to whether or not they are open to what Jesus Christ had to say. So we look today at what is one of the opening events of the public ministry of Jesus Christ, where Timing as it is in this point in our year where weddings seem to be more commonplace, Jesus Christ himself now positions his disciples at a wedding in a setting known as Cana. And we pick it up beginning in verse 1 down to verse 11. Look for the question in the midst of it all. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? There's your question. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. 
this. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It's a rich story, familiar to a lot of us. Oh my, but when we plunge into the depths of it, there are transferable truths we've got to connect with everyday living. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we open up your word, we view it as your word, not ours. Complete authority, total inerrancy, embracing its practicality. Taking now this story rooted in Jesus' earthly ministry and extracting principles for everyday living in 2014. And thanking you, Father, that your word, timeless, is so timely. There are going to be some here in these morning services and tonight as well that are struggling in ways that will be fully shared either before or after the service. But their their heart condition is deeply, deeply exposed to you. So, Father, no matter what the challenges, no matter what the difficulties, and no matter what issues of sin, Your grace is sufficient. Your power is unlimited. Break into the hardened heart and strengthen the brittle heart. And speak, Father, in a powerful way. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. For in this summer morning, we've come here again to see Jesus and him only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was an interview that captured my attention. I think the principles are transferable, don't you? It was an interview with a family known as the Flying Ridellas. Trapeze artists. In the midst of the interview, they describe a very special relationship between two individuals. The one who is known as the flyer and the one known as the catcher on the trapeze. The flyer is the one who lets go. The catcher, obviously, is the one who catches. What fascinates us is the dynamic relationship, especially to the flyer. In this interview, we are told that the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, and the moment comes when he's got to let go. And he ocks out into the air, and his job is to remain as still as possible and to wait for the strong hands of the catcher to simply pluck him out of the air. It 
It's what comes next in the interview that captures my thoughts. Where the trapeze artist said, quote, The flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. Because there is a built-in tension of perfected timing and absolute trust. The catcher will catch him. The story we're looking at this morning is the tension. The tension we experience in our relationship to God between timing and trust. It's the tension that Mary herself is going to let us in on as she begins a dialogue with her son, whom she loves dearly, Jesus. But it's this tension, likewise, that's transferable into the way in which you and I approach everyday living. Where sometimes we feel as if we've been suspended in midair. And we're waiting for that catch. There's four challenges I want to draw out from this passage this morning that address this tension. This tension of timing and trust. Let's dig in. The first challenge is found in verse 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to phrase it like this. The number one, trust the Lord even when resources seem limited. Jesus has now moved into a setting known as Cain of Galilee. The reader should not be surprised because Jesus has just involved himself in an intense dialogue with a man from Cana whose name was Nathaniel. Why, in the previous chapter of chapter 1, we were told in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Question. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Question. You will see greater things than these. Now, Nathaniel is most likely one of the disciples with Jesus, as Jesus positions his disciples in a setting where the resources are exhausted. Where now Nathaniel is going to have first hand evidence of various installments of seeing greater things than these unfold before his very eyes. Because we're told it's the third day. The third day. 
in the midst of these conversations he's had with this man from Cana. And there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And what you and I are informed here is that the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Pause. You and I are informed that Mary is there. We're informed Jesus is there. We're informed his disciples are there. We are not told the name of the bride, and we are not told the name of the bridegroom. As a matter of fact, the focal point is not on the bride and the bridegroom, but on Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, ministering to his ultimate bride, his people. What John wants to do now is to eliminate anything and everyone that are going to distract us from who deserves primary glory in this story. Because in Middle East periods in which Jesus lived, a wedding could last an entire week. And the couple would be dressed in royalty. They didn't have modern celebrations that we continuously enjoy in the U.S. Fourth of July and Super Bowls and on and on, where we build in celebrations. And so the wedding was the ultimate, particularly in those poor areas. And so the anticipation and the expectations would run high as extended family would come together. Yet the bridegroom is not mentioned by name, and the bride is not mentioned by name, but Jesus is. And you and I are told here that in verse 3, the wine ran out. Now what fascinates us at this point is that Jesus has positioned his followers in a place where resources are exhausted. He will do something very similar in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, where he will position his disciples before a mass of people of 5,000, and there will be only five loaves of bread and two fish to go around. And in both cases, the needs far outweigh the visual resources that are present. Do you feel that way about your own personal life right now? The wine ran out. And yet what you and I are informed at this point is that even though the followers are being positioned where the resources are exhausted, Jesus, on the other hand, is the person in whom the resources are unlimited. The question is, who do you turn to when the wine runs out? Mary has an answer to that question. The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. God will position his people, whether it be a John 6 principle, where there is tremendous need and only five loaves of bread and two fish, or in the celebration where the wine is running out, and the question is, where and to whom do you turn, first of all, 
as you begin to address the issue of exhausted resources, where do you turn? To whom do you return? Winston Churchill had nearly reached the height of his political power in Britain by the age of 33. He was a cabinet member, one of the nation's most popular speakers. And yet through a series of events and unpopular stances that he took, he lost his public standing and experienced ridicule, rejection. And by the early 1930s, he had been excluded from the seats of power. And his prophetic warnings about Adolf Hitler were ignored by an English public that simply wanted to hear statements about peace. Comforting words of peace. But but when Britain was plunged into World War II... By that point, Churchill was now 65 years of age, eligible to retire on a government pension. Yet that was the moment when the nation turned to him as he guided them during the darkest days of the war. Who do you turn to? When the days get dark and the wine begins to run out. God will allow us to be positioned in the days of darkness. God will put us in situations where the wine has run out. The question is, to whom do we first turn to address the issues that are of most significance? Mary turns to Jesus. Why does she turn to Jesus? Maybe she's pondering the series of events that unfolded leading to this point in time. There was that birth announcement delivered by Gabriel to her regarding the significant son and the significant mission entrusted into his care. There was the time when the shepherds appeared on the scene and they were praising God for what had taken place. And you and I are informed by Luke the physician that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. It became a scrapbook of significant ministry statements. Later, she would take with her husband Joseph, Jesus, with them at the time of Passover, where Jesus decided, according to the will of the Father, to be intentionally detained in order to carry on dialogue with those who were scholars in Torah, the Old Testament. Joseph and Mary were perplexed as to where Jesus was, and when they found out the reason that he had to be about his father's business... Again, for a second time, we were informed by Luke the physician that she treasured up these things in her heart. What was then imposed upon her heart by the Spirit is now being exposed by her heart to people around. The timing now seems right to her. This is the time for the catch. The flyer and the catcher. 
the tension you see between timing and trust. She simply turns to him. They have no wine, but she has such expectations. What are your expectations of the Lord this morning? Trust the Lord. Even when resources seem limited. A second challenge. It flows out of verses 4 and 5. Trust the Lord. Even when questions seem challenging. In verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Question. Commentators do stand headstands trying to figure out why Jesus referred to her as woman. Not simply mother, mum, and the likes. It seems so formal. Every word counts with Jesus. Words are meant to seize attention. And so I took that word in my Greek Testament and began to move through the gospel account of John to ask, and where does Jesus use this word again? On the cross of Jesus Christ, in John chapter 19, verse 26 We're informed that Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. That would be the Apostle John. And he said to his mother, Woman. Same word. Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, don't miss that word hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And now, flushed with incredible tension of timing and trust, here's this woman who treasures up all these things in her heart, and once again, she hears her son say, Woman. And her mind goes back, hopefully, to the counter in that wedding in Cana of Galilee, where when all seemed exhausted, Jesus took what seemed to be an impossible situation and turned water into wine. He's got her attention. And now on the seemingly impossible situation on that cross, he affectionately looks down upon her and says, woman, and makes arrangements for her care. And he supersedes water into wine. He turns crucifixion into resurrection. And he's got her attention. Does God have your attention this morning? Woman, what does this have to do with me, is the question. And then astoundingly makes this next statement. 
my hour has not yet come. What does he mean? If you and I begin to track the usage of this idea through John's writings in the gospel, we would reach a point in time where, for example, that Jesus is with other family members. Beyond Mary, there's his brothers in John chapter 7. And they want him to go with them to the Feast of Booths in Judea. And then we are told, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's your moment. It's your hour, Jesus, to put your glory on full display. But then we are told in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. You feel the irony here. They wanted him to put his glory on full display, yet they didn't believe in him. What did Jesus say? My time has not yet come. He'll be teaching on the fact that he is the light of the world. There's a tension among the people around him as to what he's all about. In verse 20 of that eighth chapter, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But once the Gentiles appeared on the scene, in the 12th chapter of John, Jesus, in verse 27, would cry out, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you feel the tension They want a preliminary display of glory without a full investment of faith. Too many people want God to provide a powerful display of glory through intervention in their lives without a deep and hard for added faith from their souls. For once the display is offered, it's a, well, do it again, God. More fireworks. Jesus brilliantly utilizes a question to get her thinking. He's concerned for her faith. How do you utilize questions when you're involved in sharing Jesus with other people? You remember years ago, there was a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is the answer, and then some wag would continuously in various settings across the U.S., right? And what is the question? What fascinates me is Jesus' usage of question. Do you ever get stumped when questions are being posed in dialogue? You might pose this question, do you believe in God? What happens if there is a succinct N-O as a response? Do you leave it at that point? 
I believe increasingly that in this post-Christian era that we seem to be moving into, one of the strategic usages, tools, in the midst of sharing the gospel is the usage of questions. Do you believe in God? If the person says no, use a follow-up question. Do you think you might still pray? if you were in a life-threatening situation. Question. There's a brilliant usage of questions here in the gospel that I think believers have got to be concerned with because not only is Jesus the perfect answer, Jesus poses at all times the perfect answer question. And when he does so, what he is most interested in is addressing at this point, in this story, in this account, the tension between the timing and the trust in exposing the truth. Sometimes we don't understand the timing in our lives until it's too late, so it seems. I heard of two men from a church in the Midwest who had been selected to go on a mission trip to Kenya. The bags had been packed. They had headed to the airport. Their flight was canceled. They had a six-hour wait until the next one. You know how that goes. And they waited. Big guys, 6'5", 6'6", could take care of themselves. For some reason, they were seated in first class, although they hadn't paid the high affairs. And during the long flight, they heard this struggle in the cockpit and discovered that there was this crazed man fighting with the pilot. And the plane nosedived from 30,000 to 4,000 feet quickly. It was headed downward. These two big guys rushed forward and easily had this guy under control. Looking back at the experience, they later agreed, God's delays are not always God's denials. Mary thinks this is Jesus' moment. Let's put it all out there. The need is great. And the provision will be valued. But you see, the timing wasn't right. My hour has not yet come. Now, how does she respond when she hears that? And how do you respond when you are expecting immediate intervention? In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She must have been catering this wedding. She doesn't say, do whatever I tell you. She exposes her faith in the midst of this delay when facing this very unique question because what captures her attention, woman, will be repeated on that cross 
when he does something far greater than turn water into wine. He turns crucifixion into resurrection, you see. Does God have your attention in the midst of delay? What questions are you grappling with this morning? Third challenge emerges out of these verses from 6 down to verse 8. Trust the Lord. Even when effort seems futile. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. If fully used, this would provide 2,400 servings, according to historians. We're talking quantity. Jesus said to the servants in verse 7, fill the jars with water. It's a command. Notice with what is said and what is not said. What is said is a command. What is not said is the intention. He does not say, fill these with water and I will turn water into wine. heard me say it. God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. God conceals enough to cause our faith to grow. And there will always be this tension of revealing concealing that's spotted here in verses such as these. He delivers a command without giving them a reason. How are you going to respond? When all you're given is a command, and this is going to seem rather odd, fill the jars with water, but notice they filled them up to the brim, not halfway. And then he says in verse 8, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, this has all the markings of an awkward moment. Are they going to bring a cup of water to this master of the feast? The intentions are withheld as the commands are given. The action is required, and though the embarrassment seems possible, awkward And yet you and I are told. So they took it. Without further explanation. You ever face the challenge of obedience without further explanation? When Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, first went to China, his biographer informs us it was in a sailing vessel. And very close to the shore of a cannibalistic island, the ship was slowing down, slowly drifting shoreward, unable to go about. The winds had died down. 
The biographer tells us the captain came to Mr. Taylor, had heard of his great impact upon lives, and asked him to pray for the help of God. I will, said Taylor, provided you set your sails to catch the breeze. The captain said no. He didn't want to make himself a, a laughing stock in front of his crew. Taylor said, I will not undertake to pray for the vessel unless you prepare the sails. It was done. And so while he prayed, there was a knock at the door of his stateroom. Who's there, he asked. It's the captain. Are you still praying for wind? Yes. And then the captain said, you better stop praying. We've got more wind than we can manage. We're about to capsize. Do you trust the Lord even when the effort seems futile? Setting the sails when there's no wind? filling it to the brim and taking it to the master of the ceremony without being told what's happening. There's a fourth challenge here. Trust the Lord, fourthly, even when understanding seems lacking. Some of the people lack insider info, and they don't get it here. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, insider statement, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he doesn't know. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, small b, not big b, And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the wine until now. You, speaking of the bridegroom, small b, not you, speaking of the bridegroom, big b, Jesus. We live in a culture of misplaced credit. Where glory is given to humanity rather than glory being given to God. There is misplaced credit, yet astoundingly we are told regarding the insider information, this in verse 11, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Fascinating. So this week I was again reading various websites in the Middle East, out of Egypt, out of Israel, and so on and so forth. And there was another Israeli intervention. Terrorists attacked, thwarted. The man who was in part of the intervention was being interviewed regarding the timing of the intervention. And he said regarding thwarting this terrorist attack, We couldn't afford to intervene too soon. 
And we couldn't afford to intervene too late. The timing had to be perfect. And the hostages had to trust us. And I thought of this story. Do you see the catch? Timing and trust. There are two significant principles that flow out of this passage this morning regarding the question of timing. First one's this. God's work is purposeful, revealing his glory and strengthening our faith. It's not revealing our glory. It's revealing his glory. It's the bridegroom with a big B. We don't even know the name of that bridegroom in Cana, nor the bride. But the focus needs to be upon Jesus and no one else. But here's the other principle that captures my attention, that warms, I believe, our hearts. That second of all, God's ways are impactful as he often saves the best for last. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now, the man says, but it's misplaced credit. Yet, the bridegroom with a capital B keeps serving the best for last. As a woman at that cross, hears the word woman uttered. And ponders that the one who turned water into wine is the one who turns crucifixion into resurrection. When the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he must let go. He arcs out into the air, and it's his job to remain as still as possible to wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. And then the one being interviewed adds, The flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. It's the tension between perfected timing and absolute trust. The catcher will catch him. And no one will pluck you out of the catcher's hand. As the worship team comes forward, let's pray. Praising you and thanking you, Father, for who you are. Thanking you for the brilliant, perfected use of questions that Jesus posed that force us to examine our hearts and our relationship to you in the complexities of life. For the one who's struggling with trust, for the one who's struggling with timing, take them to truth and show them Jesus. 
In Jesus' name.